Welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. While Indonesia may be best known for its exotic uh, tourist destinations such as Bali, Sumatra, and Java, it's also home to the largest Muslim population of any country in the world. And today we're going to talk about Indonesia's state ideology, Pancasila, which literally means five principles. It was crafted at the beginning of the country's independence from the Netherlands in 1945 to help unify the entire population, which today stands as fourth largest globally at some 270 million people. The first principle of the Pancasila is belief in the almighty God or monotheism. Uh, The second is uh, just and civilized humanity. Third, the unity of Indonesia. Fourth, democracy guided by the inner wisdom and the unanimity arising out of deliberations among representatives. And finally, fifth, uh, social justice for the whole of the people of Indonesia. We have with us today USERF policy analyst Patrick Greenwald to go deeper on this ideology and discuss a recent USERF report on Panchasila and how it relates to religious freedom in the country. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, before we learn more about Panchasila, uh, Patrick, and its impact on religious freedom, could you tell us uh, first a little bit about the recent Palm Sunday suicide attack on a Catholic church in the city of Makassar uh, that made international news? And what can you tell us about this incident? And is this something to be worried about going forward since we know there have been uh, similar extremist attacks in, in the country over the years? Yeah, so Indonesia has unfortunately a long history of dealing with terrorist activity in particular from radical Islamists. The terrorist attack on the Sacred Heart of Jesus Cathedral in Makassar on Palm Sunday is just the latest example. In this case, while at least 20 were facing injuries, the only two that died were the perpetrators themselves. And most of this terrorist activity is done by Indonesians within the country and acting within the country, though there are some connections to the wider global terrorist networks. However, it should be noted that Indonesia has been proactive in coordinating with the international community to confront the challenge of terrorism. Following the big 2002 Bali bombings, which killed 202 people, the Indonesian government worked with the U.S. and partners to form the Counterterrorism Special Detachment, 88. Efforts like these have reduced the capacity for terrorist attacks and their death toll. But as we saw on Palm Sunday, terrorism remains a persistent issue. There is still much work to be done, and it cannot only be viewed through a securitization lens which I think the Indonesian government understands in part through its efforts to reform Panchasila. Well, so tell us uh, more about uh, the Panchasila, where it came from, originated, and uh, why is it still important today? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Panchasila literally means five principles, and these are intentionally vague principles. It is important to remember the context in which they emerged. The archipelago that comprises Indonesia exists as one political unit entirely from the machinations of Europe, which first entered the region looking to control the lucrative spice trade and then eventually to control territory for their home markets. 
The Dutch colonized modern Indonesia throughout the 19th and first half of the 20th centuries, with only a brief interruption at the end during World War II when the Japanese occupied. With the advent of independence, however, the myriad of ethnicities, cultures, and both religious and political groups threatened to pull apart Indonesia. Nationalists, communists, and Islamists all competed for the direction the new country should take. To make a long story short, ultimately Sukarno rose as the leader and first president of an independent Indonesia, and the faction from which he rose sought to synthesize these political interest groups by making very broad and general principles for the core of the new nation. Throughout Indonesia's history, Pancasila has been referenced as the ideology that unites Indonesia and has created their common identity, regardless of religion or ethnicity, even though, of course, the island and people of Java dominate the political and economic center. Very interesting, but uh, tell me, how does uh, the Pancasila specifically impact the freedom of religion or belief as we would monitor it, you know, given that the principles are, are certainly a bit more broad uh, than that. Right. Right. So the primary religious freedom dimension of Pancasila rests on its first principle, the belief in one almighty God or monotheism. The prevailing view of Indonesia's founding figures was to avoid building the new nation on a foundation of Islam, as eventually happened in neighboring Malaysia. Although there were strong forces in favor of carving a Muslim state out of independent Indonesia, Sukarno successfully steered the government away from this. This first principle, however, in other words, was a distinctly Indonesian attempt to recognize the religious fervor of more conservative figures while also making it abstract enough to not be singularly Islamic. The definition and interpretation of what constitutes belief in the Almighty God has been debated and adapted primarily in the first two decades of Indonesia's existence. But the understanding that developed then and still holds true today is that monotheism could only be professed in religions that met certain criteria, such as holy texts, history, rituals, and so on. But even so, the government left this criteria vague enough to include the officially recognized religions, Islam, assumed in state policy to be Sunni Islam, Catholicism, Protestantism, which includes communities that initially came to Indonesia through colonial missionary activity, Hinduism and Buddhism, which have a long history and are still practiced in some places, and Confucianism, which is a blanket term for all those spiritual practices for the people who originally descended from China, who have been in the country for centuries. Although these, the state took pains to include many different groups and thereby avoid communitarian conflict, it intentionally left out many others, particularly non-Sunni Muslim communities, such as Shia, Namidia Muslims, Baha'is, Jews, and others. It has also allowed no room for non-theists, who represent a philosophical and legal quandary for the Indonesian state and its first principle of Indonesia. Yeah, so it sounds like there's some uh, limitations there. Had there been any... Uh, specific new developments uh, related to the evolution of Pancasila? And if not, then why the focus on the ideology now uh, if, if we haven't seen any updates uh, or it hasn't become a bit more embracing of some of these other groups that are, that are kind of left out? Right. So this is an important question. After the era of Sakarno, just as a bit more background, which ended in 1967, Pancasila continued to be an important state ideology but steadily declined, 
Recently, however, it's a stage, uh, a bit of a comeback in political prominence. Indonesian society has been affected by a global movement of hardline interpretations of Islam that come into contrast with the relatively moderate brand Indonesia prides itself on. And the government has increasingly been cognizant of this trend, especially after terrorist attacks like the one that occurred on Palm Sunday. To counter this fundamentalist surge, the administration of President Joko Widodo, or Jokowi, has pursued a sort of moderation campaign. A crucial component of this effort is on revamping and recentering Pancasila at the core of the nation. This includes re-examining how Pancasila is taught in schools, how it is enforced in the public sector, and how it is policed through society at large. Now, what, isn't that a good thing that Indonesia's government is seeking uh, to counter extremist uh, movements, you know, given its track record and history, as you, as you said earlier, with a history of some of those uh, attacks over the years? And given uh, the, the fact that, frankly, some other countries in the region might look uh, at Indonesia as a model for coexistence? Right. So, yes and no on the question of whether it's a good thing. While there are many religious freedom and other human rights implications to this effort, we should make it clear from the start that it is good that the intention of President Jokowi's administration to counter radical Islamist movements and intolerant forms of religion by strengthening Indonesia's commitment to pluralism deserves praise. This is good, and the U.S. should indeed work with its partners in the Indonesian government to provide assistance and cooperation for these efforts. However, it is important to note that this moderation campaign is not an effort to bolster human rights, including the fundamental freedom of religion and belief. And this is the distinction why Yusuf has released a fact sheet on Panchasila at this moment. For starters, as already mentioned, non-theists are not in a position for inclusion in the state ideology because of this first principle of monotheism and the government is not looking to address that. Second, the government has demonstrated its willingness to turn to undemocratic efforts to police Panchasila. For example, as Yusuf has reported in the past, is the Adran ASN, which is an online portal for anyone to report on anti-Panchasila behavior and beliefs held by the state bureaucracy. In 2017, President Jokowi signed a regulation in lieu of law number two, this regulation empowers the Minister of Law and Human Rights to ban any organization that it deems to oppose the official ideology of Panchasila, with penalties that can include imprisonment from six months to life. In fact, Indonesia saw this implementation of this law recently, at the end of 2020, when the government banned a fundamentalist organization, Islamic Defenders Front, or known as FPI. This organization is a fundamentalist Islamic organization and not by any means a paragon of human rights or specifically freedom of religion and belief. In 2017, it was a leading organization in mobilizing demonstrations against then governor of Jakarta, Ozuki Jahaja Punama, also known as Ahak, an ethnic Chinese and Christian politician who was ultimately imprisoned on charges of blasphemy. But the tactics used by the government to target both the leader of FPI, Riziak Shahab, and then ban the organizations can be interpreted as increasingly authoritarian tactics that Jacoby's administration are employing to enforce its moderation campaign. Mm, so that so that certainly makes a lot of sense about its limitations. Are there any other areas of these current efforts to reform and enforce Panchasila uh, that would impact or have uh, some kind of uh, concern for uh, freedom of religion or belief as we know it uh, based on the international standards? 
Yes. So the government, the legislature attempted twice to reform and to enhance Panchasila and empower the agency responsible for its enforcement, the Agency for Panchasila Ideology Education. But these ran into unexpected roadblocks over the summer last year in 2020. Two bills, uh, the two bills did not pass. And this is in part due to opposition from increasingly vocal Muslim organizations who are worried that reforming Panchasila would represent a veiled attempt at what they view as the secularization of the country. This criticism in particular demonstrates an interesting aspect about Indonesia and how Panchasila fits into the culture. The government, with the exception of the autonomous provincial government of Aceh, does not regulate religious behavior in the same way as neighbors like Brunei and Malaysia do. And Islam is not recognized as a state religion, but religious identity is an important narrative throughout the country that the Indonesian government has always had to recognize. And the efforts around revamping Panchasila can be viewed from this lens as the government's continued attempts to manage religious fervor in an inclusive way, even if that inclusivity has limits. Well, it certainly sounds like something we should be uh, tracking and monitoring going forward. I, I want to thank uh, USERF uh, policy analyst Patrick Greenwald for, for his in-depth uh, coverage of uh, the Panchasila in Indonesia and his insights today about uh, how that intersects with religious freedom. You can find uh, USERF's fact sheet uh, on uh, Panchasila that uh, Patrick authored on our website at www.uscirf.gov. Thanks for tuning in today, and we will see you next time on USERF Spotlight. USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F.gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at USCIRF. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.